news, the beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar, and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A agent. I hope to see you there. there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hooks segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. Hi everyone, welcome to another Books with Hooks. Today we are super excited to have our guest agent, Emmy Nordstrom-Higdon with us from Westwood Creative Artists. Emmy, welcome to the show and thanks for coming back. Oh my goodness, thank you for having me. It's always such a pleasure. We love having you. And for those of you who do submit to Books with Hooks, when you are writing in a genre that you don't think Carly or Cece sort of are interested in or specialize in, you can submit to a guest agent. In about two weeks time, we're having another guest agent who specializes in speculative fiction. And so we do try and get to it as often as we can. Right, Emmy, will you kick us off by reading us the first query letter? Yeah, absolutely. Dear guest agent, thank you so much for selecting my query to critique on the podcast, which is essentially a masterclass in writing whilst building a beautifully supportive community for all us aspiring writers. I'm incredibly grateful for your willingness to provide feedback on my 61,000 word middle grade novel, Call Me Wildling. 
I recently had a request for a full with an eventual pass as it wasn't right for that agent's current list and some complimentary replies from other agents, but I'm wondering if there's anything I can do to further hook an agent and have them request pages. Wildling will appear to readers of Gary Paulson's Hatchet and Kate Alice Marshall's I'm Still Alive for their theme of survival in the wilderness, as well as readers who love the tone and emotionality of The Thing About Jellyfish by Ali Benjamin. Avery is destined to be a free kid. When their mom surprises them with a trip up north to a cabin, Avery dreams of being wild and free come true except Avery's dad doesn't know where they are and their mom doesn't seem interested in telling them or going back an argument has her hopping in the boat to let him know their location in ETA except she never returns and Avery is stuck there in a cabin on an island alone well except for messy a half-blind French bulldog a pantry with some food in it and all the survival skills their mom taught them since they were little with a failed attempt to cross an almost frozen lake, the incredible engineering of a hanging hot tub, and the growing need to hunt for food while wondering what happened to their mom, Avery discovers the triumphs and devastating missteps of surviving up north as winter stretches long. While Avery's dad starts a search that hops from one dead end to the next, Avery discovers what it takes to become a true wildling. I live in, and I'll leave that location out, where I originally earned a BA in English literature before becoming a registered massage therapist. I'm the mom-stepmom of a beautifully chaotic blended family, make chocolate in the winter, attempt headstands to gain a new perspective, and sneak writing time in the dusty corners of each day. Sincerely, Brit. Wonderful, Emmy. Yeah. Wow, that that sounds like a really compelling pitch. I mean, what's what's your take on it? <laughs> Absolutely. This sounds like my absolute worst nightmare brought to life. <laughs> I can't imagine this story, but I feel like there is a real appetite. This really it like it feels like a contemporary take on kind of like the books that we grew up reading when I was a kid. So it's really kind of neat. I love this idea of especially these days taking like a modern kid who, you know, lives in a a very, I'm sure, like digitally native tech focused world and plunking them out in a cabin in the wild to like see what happens to them. And I like the mystery aspect of their mom having gone with them and then kind of disappearing because it feels like there's sort of two mysteries going on at once, which I really like. I think that's a unique aspect to this one i also love the dog obviously <laughs> yeah geez i'm i'm thinking of the books that i grew up reading like the secret seven and the famous five exactly. and these kids were always off on adventures and i think of kids today and kind of the society we live in yeah. and and the helicopter parenting and the way kids need to be protected more than kids had to be when you know way back then kids could just run amok their parents didn't know where the hell they were <laughs> and it was fine because they were mostly safe you know so it is lovely reading like this again so yeah. in terms of their request for how can they hook an agent more have you got any advice in terms of the query letter of something that they're not positioning properly so I did adjust the query letter a little bit I made it a little bit more concise in my notes that are for your Kofi subscribers I thought that like honestly I think that it's in pretty good shape this letter so I was a little bit surprised but I do think that one of the things that I adjusted a little bit was the bio which was a little bit long so I had taken out a note about the author having recently reacquired the rights to an old trilogy that she had published because I think that kind of information can come later in the call with the agent and I think that sometimes like things like that can sort of clutter up what it sounds like you're looking for from an agent. So I hope that that would help. I also found like, so this letter is a little bit over a page long. And I think that sort of the closer to a page you can get it, I usually aim for like 
300, 350 words. So I was trying to shorten it a little bit because I think that sometimes it might just be a matter of time. Like, so when queries come into our agency, they get read by a couple of people and then they kind of get shuffled off to the right agent. If they're not like super clear and easy to decipher, then sometimes that means it takes them longer to get to the right person. And so I hope that by making it like a little bit shorter and a little bit clearer, that would help. And the other thing that I did take out, I'm noticing now that the things that I removed aren't in my text. So I'll be more careful about that on the next one. But I did remove that in the first paragraph, she had sort of written that the book was, she had written that it's intentionally gender neutral and inclusive. And I think that's great. But I also think that the agent will know that as they start reading, you know, so things like that, I think that you don't necessarily need to be so explicit about and it can change depending on the agent, it can kind of change how they position the book in their mind as like an issue book versus like an adventure book, you know, so I really wanted to make sure that this letter was really, really clear that it was a survival story and that it's this you know, like nature adventure story and not something that's like specifically about gender or about sexuality or whatever. So hopefully that will help. Excellent points. Okay, can you give our listeners an understanding of what was in those opening pages? Yeah, so there are two chapters. One of the things that I did note to the author is that I think she could do a little bit more to flesh them out because they're a little bit short. So you actually get two chapters in the five page sample. The content was great. I just kind of thought that, you know, like, as a reader, it'll make it flow a little bit better if the sections can be a bit longer. But for as as a sample, it worked really well because we get a snapshot of the main character, Avery, and her dog, who I am already in love with, up in this cabin, like by themselves a week after her mom has already gone. So they're already sort of like, what is going on? Like, where, like, how come my mom hasn't come back yet? And then we also get kind of a, it's not a flashback, but it's, I think the story is told out of chronological order. So we also get a chapter where we see the main character, Avery, at school kind of not fitting in and reflecting on like how much easier it used to be when she was younger with her friends. And there was less kind of, I think this part is very relatable, but less kind of like social drama and people were more interested in playing outside and doing the things that she really likes to do or that they really like to do. So I thought that the sample was actually great and it was a nice way to kind of see that characterization piece that leads to the character's family, their family going up to this cabin, because I'm not sure that it's every teenager's dream to, you know, like hop in a boat and go with your mom to a cabin in the middle of nowhere. But also to see like that anxiety that's already building from the first page, I think is really, really important. Yeah, I think that the tension especially is something that I hear from editors all the time that they're looking for stories that are really propulsive these days. So I think that tension is really great to get right from the start. Amazing. And is there any advice you can give to the author? Yeah, for improvements? So I did note that there were some repetitive words. So that's something I find really hard to see as an author myself. You know, once you've read something so many times, sometimes you sort of lose that picture. So I just pointed those out. And that can be really helpful to have even like a friend or it doesn't even need to be a beta reader or another writer, but just to kind of point out those things. So I pointed those out. I also found that yeah, like I said, the sections were a little bit short, so it feels a little bit choppy. I think that there could just be, I assume that like, because the story jumps around in time, there are probably chapters that come back to these snapshots. And I think they could probably just be combined even to be longer. 
I always sort of think about it as like a puzzle, right? You don't want to throw pieces away, but you can move them around. So I think that that's the most important. I was really impressed that the author's first page, I am always looking for, you know, like very specific things on the first page. And I find it can be really tricky to squish it all in. And I thought that their first page was like fantastic. So, so yeah, that was something that I was really impressed by that she managed to get in that first page, kind of a little bit about the character, you know, right away what the conflict is, you know, right away what the character is struggling with so I thought that was great amazing thank you okay let's go to the second query letter yes absolutely I loved that these were also different by the way they are all different genres and things so that was really really fun to take a look at this one is also middle grade but very different (laughs) so let me just see here Dear Bianca, Carly, Cece, and guest agent, in a constellation of stars, a 40,000-word middle-grade dystopian, the merger of the government and a biotech company results in the misuse of their citizens' genetic information. And I had removed a section here about that sort of contextualized the book in the political kind of setting, I guess, that we're in right now. So it said, in the year 2000, President Bill Clinton addressed the world regarding the completion of the Human Genome Project, saying that someday our children's children will know the term cancer only as a constellation of stars. Yet many warned this catalog of our genes could result in the abuse of privacy and discrimination. And then it goes on to the summary, which says, the summer before eighth grade, Claire's dad leaves her family to start over with a new partner with a high genetic rating. After all, this practice is encouraged by the founder. Her new family arrangement requires Claire to transfer to the community public school, full of students with inferior genetic ratings. She doesn't know how she will make friends with people genetically different from her until she meets Seth, a genetic outlier that doesn't fit any mold she's ever been taught. At her new school, Claire starts to wonder whether the founder's intentions are what is best for the community, especially when she learns that the founder wants to eliminate people with genetic differences. Claire must realize she is more than her genetic rating and find the courage to stand up to the institution and share her beliefs. Claire begins to question her world when she meets new friends, like Megan Fraser Blackmore's The Firefly Code series. This story would also pair well with Hannah Sue and The Ghost Crab Nation by Sylvia Liu, because Claire's character arch is similar to Hannah's journey in the world of genetic engineering. When I'm not writing, I enjoy teaching students of all ages as a reading specialist. I especially love working with the middle grade audience and connecting students with books that will make them lifelong readers and learners. I'm an active member of SCBWI. The shit no one tells you about writing podcasts has helped me grow as a writer, and I'm so grateful for your time and effort. Thank you for your consideration. Warmly, Carrie. Wonderful. It's it's, it's awesome to actually see somebody writing in middle grade who yeah. works with kids, you know, middle grade kids, because I often hear adults writing in this genre and they don't teach and they don't really know children of this age and that always makes me nervous this is why I couldn't write middle grades so what do you think no I totally agree and I find that especially when we're writing in this age category I feel exactly the same as this author does it's so fun to know that you know the stories that you really love and the books that you write can really have an impact on kids at that age I mean I remember being such an avid reader It was so much of my life when I was so little because, you know, you have so much time and you have these worlds that you can explore for the very first time. It can be such a powerful experience. So I thought that that was neat. And I also don't find that we get a lot of science fiction in that age range, maybe because it's like a newer age category and that will come. But I thought it was interesting. This is such a complex concept for a middle grade book. And I found it a little bit difficult to absorb through the query letter. But once I started reading, I found it was much more accessible. So I was glad about that. Because I 
I don't like it when books underestimate what children can take on, you know, so many kids are so smart and so well read that, you know, I think that there's a lot more that they understand than we sometimes give them credit for. And I hate it when books feel patronizing and this really didn't. So I think that's really great. Amazing. Is there anything else you'd suggest they change before we move on to the pages? Yeah. I mean, the only thing in the query letter is that I would, if possible, add sort of a line about why you're querying the agent that you are, because this one like really just jumped right in. And I found that the sort of like political contextualization, it's more interesting to an adult than it would be to a children, to a child rather, in terms of like what, how we're thinking about the book. And I sort of, so I would chop that out and I would just add sort of a note about why, you know, like you're looking at the agent that you're looking at, because I think that that can be really helpful in terms of establishing what your goals are and who it is that you're like, what kind of research you've done around the agent that you want and also kind of why, like what direction you're thinking it's moving in, in terms of why you think you'd be a good fit. So I think that would be more useful in the query letter. And of course, like I always tell people, don't think that this is going to be like your one chance to ever speak to the agent that you want, you know, like hopefully you're going to have further emails, further phone calls. And so if you have sort of like a political reason or like a personal reason why you've written the book, that can always come up later. I love what you've said about the personalization in terms of how you framed it for the author's goals, because I have seen a lot of writers on Twitter who are very frustrated. They feel like they spend hours researching each agent, personalizing the query letter, sending it out, and then they get a form rejection. And they're so frustrated right. by that. And they're going, I'm not going to personalize anymore because I've wasted my time and I get a form rejection. But in terms of, you know, when you say, this is why I feel we'll be a good fit and these are my goals etc and this is where I see my career going I think from that perspective it can be really helpful yeah absolutely and I don't think it should be like I hope that people don't take it on as like a massive burden the research that you've done is probably more than enough than you need to do honestly and so I think the personalizations that work the best for me as an agent honestly are like just things that show that people have a sense of what it is that they want from me, you know? So if people write like, oh, I read on your manuscript wish list that you love whatever book that, you know, is relevant to their project, that's great. It's nice to know that they've read my manuscript wish list. Like, that's awesome. But it's best for me when people write, you know, I listen to you on this podcast and I know that you like to work with authors who work in this style or who are interested in like building a career, for example, because my agency is very very focused on, you know, multiple projects, not just one book. And so it's things like that, that sort of make me think like, oh, you've really thought about where you want to go with this and why, how I can help you get there. And that's like the most important thing to me and not so much like, oh, you've followed me on Twitter for a long time or, you know, like those yeah. things are really sweet and really flattering a lot of the time, but it's not as useful as something else. Yeah. Yeah. And definitely don't be writing to agents. I love how you ordered Timbits every <laughs> Wednesday morning at 8.15 at the Front Street Tim Hortons because exactly. that will creep them the hell out. Okay. Yeah, so sure. not that kind of personalization. No. Okay. So what was in those opening pages, Emmy? Yeah. So, I mean, I honestly found myself writing the, how strong this was. I really loved it. It basically was the the chapter that was submitted is essentially the first day of school for the main character at the new school that they're going to go to. So it has the character kind of reflecting back on her previous school like you would be if you were going to a new place, but also kind of going through the motions of like an orientation and getting her ID and meeting people for the first time. So there's it's nice because there's a lot of action that happens. I find 
something that I'm running into a lot with not only like query manuscripts, but also like from some of my clients writing lately, I find myself really hammering home the idea of balancing like narrative dialogue and action in the scene. And I find that a lot of people are writing like really beautiful interiority, but then it's not necessarily like contextualized or grounded in a way that's really satisfying. And so it's so important to take those, especially in the current publishing climate where people are looking for really immersive stories and things that move quickly. You want to be really multitasking a lot of the time. So if you're having these like beautiful interior moments, we also want to see kind of what's going on for the character around them. And I thought that this author did that really, really cleverly because the things that the character is going through are not things that are particularly unfamiliar. So I mean, like we've all been to you know, like an organization where you have to like go in, you give your ID, you like go through the motions of all of this stuff. But it gives her a really easy opening into doing some of that world building. So for example, instead of having like an ID card, the student has like a chip in her hand that she's always scanning on things. And that's like such an easy, you know, like it's, it's so different from what we would experience as children in middle school that it really like works well for the world building. But then as she's like scanning her chip every time too, she's thinking about this genetic code that makes her different from the people around her for the first time. And so it gives her these openings for the interiority to come in too. So yeah, I thought it was really, really clever. It was really well written. It was, like I said, surprisingly accessible given like how complex the subject matter was. I My head was a little bit spinning by the end of the query letter. I'm not great at like heavy world building building, but it comes in in a really natural way in the writing sample. So I thought that was great. Wonderful. And for our Kofi supporters, you mm-hmm. can find the pages there so you can see how the author did it. And just for our listeners as well, remember that interiority and emotionality are so necessary to bring a character to life. But when you're thinking about pacing, those kinds of things do slow pacing down. Absolutely. So for example, if you have a character who's running around dodging bullets, they are not going to be thinking about their feelings. <laughs> about these bullets or how in the future they might avoid putting themselves in a situation where they might have bullets being flung at them. They're just going to be running like hell and trying to get out the way. Mm -hmm. And then afterwards, there's a time for them to regroup and feel about it and think about it, etc. So you always want to be balancing that out. Emmy, was there anything else you wanted to add on that before we move to the next one? No, this one was really strong and it was really fun to read. So I'm really, yeah, I think that the author's on a really good path. Wonderful. Okay, next query letter. So we're definitely changing speeds here. (laughs) This one is a contemporary romance. So dear Cece, Carly, and Bianca, first, I'm so grateful for the resources you all provide, whether it be online classes, CP meetups, or a simple Instagram post, you've all helped me learn so much. That's actually a great example of what I'm talking about, about the personalization. So rather than being like, I'm such a huge fan of the podcast, not that you shouldn't do this, because obviously that's not the purpose of this letter. But you know, like, I'm such a huge fan of the podcast. I've been listening for six years. And you know, I, I love everything you say and everything you do. Like, that's awesome. And it feels so good to read. But this is such a concrete example of like how this author uses the podcast so when she says like you know whether it be the online classes cp meetups or a simple instagram post like that tells me something about how she interacts with the resources that you're offering so anyway something like that but translated into the agent world is a great example of a personalization that's really useful and and that that when you translate it says i am serious about my craft 100 i attend i attend classes i've got critique partners which shows that you know they're invested in their career and they take it 
Seriously. Absolutely. And it's not just like, I wrote a book and also I listened to your podcast in my car, which is like, awesome. It's really flattering when people consume the content that you create or like when they follow you on Twitter and things like that. But it doesn't give me information about your process the way that this does. So yeah, I right. loved that. So it goes on. I'm seeking representation for Danielle and the Nine Dates from Hell, a contemporary romance novel loosely inspired by the Divine Comedy by Dante. I'm going to get this last name wrong. It's Italian. Alighieri. Complete at 78,000 words. This story reads like a Mahiri McFarlane novel, stars a goal-oriented MC similar to Get a Life Chloe Brown by Talia Hibbert, and a dating scheme akin to 10 Rules for Faking It by Sophie Sullivan. Weighed down by debt and a two-year crush, 28-year-old Danielle Rogers makes a bet with her three roommates. Go on nine dates and get one month of free rent while making her crush jealous. Fail and pay all their rent for a month. Danielle cannot fail for her heart or for her wallet. As her dates flop in hellish fashion, Dr. Michael Proctor swoops in to rescue Danielle date after date. Soon, Danielle begins to seek out Michael in the name of safety, and he's all too willing to be her savior until personal matters get in the way of their blossoming relationship. Thanks to demons from Michael's past, Danielle is left to fend off the dates on her own, praying she can avoid sinking further into debt and another broken heart. And then there was a content warning paragraph and the bio says, I'm a mother of two boys. I work on my family's vineyard in Michigan. When I'm not writing or making wine, I can be found drinking or reading many times together. Thank you for your consideration, Christine. Your life sounds dreamy, Christine. <laughs> I have, I know. When I read that, I was like, oh, wow, like that sounds lovely, actually. <laughs> I know. I've, I've got severe life envy here, right? Christine. It sounds uh, really nice. Okay, so what was your take on that? Yeah, I mean, I thought it was a good letter. The, one thing that I would say is that there's always this question of content warnings, right? I love it when people include them. But something that I will say is that you don't need to include the content warnings for the entire book in your query letter. So I would say, like, if there's something that comes up in your writing sample, definitely include, like, a quick content warning. But if you have a book that's, like, you know, 70, this is a 78,000 word book, like, obviously, there's a lot that's going to come up that's not going to be in this email. I would wait until somebody gives the full request before spelling out like the entire, you know, like, because there's a lot of content warnings here. And they make sense because because of the book that like the divine comedy that this book is, is based on. It's, it doesn't feel superfluous, but it's obvious that it's not all going to come out in the next five pages, you know. So one way to make your query letter a little more efficient is just hold on to that until you get the full request. The other thing I wanted to know is I like I thought the summary was good, but I wanted to know kind of why this guy all of a sudden shows up and what Danielle needs saving from like it's it, it sounds like a kind of cute like lighthearted bet to go on like nine dates in a month and like do these things and then all of a sudden she's being saved by this dude which like is obviously an important plot point but I sort of without being super familiar with the divine comedy it's been a few years since I studied <laughs> literature in university you know I was sort of like but what's like what is he saving her from like what is is it actual danger or is it like you know a really bad date that he's just like happens to be there and like rescues her from embarrassment for example so I wanted a little more context to the plot line that's being offered here and it's so easy to fall into that trap as a writer because you're so familiar with the plot that you know it all seems to make sense to you as you're writing a summary but there are just like a couple of holes here that I was like wait what <laughs> I don't know where I'm going so yeah I felt like I wanted a little bit more detail but on the bright side this is a shortish letter and once you take out those content warnings too there's lots of space for elaboration so I don't think it's a problem amazing yeah okay what was in those opening pages so the opening pages of this one I I sort of felt like needed a little bit of 
like reorganization. But what we have here is the, it's basically the first chapter and the scene that we're getting is hilarious. Um, it's the main character going to a bar with her roommates wearing a bee costume, like a full-blown bubble bee costume to celebrate her friend's birthday. But it's not Halloween. So her and her friends are the only people in these like super elaborate costumes in a bar like on a regular weekday. So obviously shenanigans ensue. She's like running into her crush, running into other guys. She's like super embarrassed because she's in this like full body puffy bee costume but like it's a Tuesday at the pub and she's like very obvious <laughs> so it's a cute scene I really liked it the one thing that I found was that she interacts with three men in this chapter and I thought that like that was fine that part I didn't feel like was gratuitous because she's at a bar so like she's bumping into people all over the place but the person who at least from reading this sample, I think is the actual love interest is the last one that she runs into, like right at the end of the five page sample. So usually for romance novels, the sort of like genre convention is that he would be like the first guy that she runs into ideally. So I would just move that interaction. It was also like extremely charming, this interaction, and the others were like less so. So I think it would be a more fun one to start out with. So I would just move that interaction like up to the top, then have her move on. And at one point she runs into the guy who she has a super crush on and then she sees his date. So this is obviously like the moment in this chapter, right? Like this is the inciting incident, but I felt like it came too soon to have any kind of emotional impact because she had just walked into the bar. She like sees this guy, she sees his date, and then she moves on to interacting with these other people. And so I sort of thought like the more buildup that there was to that, I think it would be more effective. So I thought the elements of this chapter were really good. They just sort of need like a little bit of, it's like a game of Jenga, right? You're always like moving pieces. So I thought that shuffling up that structure would really help it be like as strong as it could possibly be. But it was cute. It was voicey. I really liked it. It was fun to read and there were lots of like cute little details about you know how she first met her crush over a conversation about deep dish pizza and how they both really like it things like that that just are really nice for this genre because it really makes it feel like confessional and personal and very cute so yeah I really I thought it was very good Lovely. And as someone who wants to move to Chicago purely for the deep dish pizza, <laughs> I am on board for all of the cheese. All of it. Love it. <laughs> okay. Next query letter. Yes, absolutely. So this one, we are moving out of the romance genre and moving on to a memoir, which honestly, so I found this personally really challenging because I wasn't sure, like most of the time when I get queries for nonfiction, it's in a book proposal. So sometimes I get a traditional query letter, but I usually don't get like a five page sample. So I thought that this was interesting. It was sort of like an interesting intellectual exercise for me, if not for the author. So thank you for that. But I approached it like someone would have been sending me this as like a query preceding a book proposal. So I hope that nonfiction authors know that, you know, you don't necessarily have to be done your entire manuscript to query a nonfiction book. And that normally, like my request, my first question after getting a query is always going to be whether people have a book proposal and not whether they have a full manuscript. So it's a, like, it's a bit of a different process. It's a little bit tricky, but I think that this letter was a really good letter. So anyway, hopefully, hopefully the author kind of has that vision in mind of doing a book proposal rather than necessarily sending the entire manuscript as like one full piece. Yeah. Just before you go on to that, 
that's interesting because a lot of agents I know kind of separate memoir from other nonfiction projects and they kind of view memoir more like a novel to be pitched like a novel and it needs to be complete. And you're saying for you, if they pitched you a memoir, if they had a proposal, it wouldn't have to be complete. No, not necessarily. And I mean, like, you're right. Sometimes I do think of memoir different. I mean, it is sort of a different category than if you're writing like a book about rocks or, you know, like a even like a true crime story or something like that. But I I do find that when people are writing any kind of nonfiction, often the editor themselves will have kind of an idea of how to position this story in the market more so than they would with like a like a fictional story. And so whether the book is finished or not, I think that sometimes, you know, you end up generating extra text based on kind of that vision or that positioning or you end up like losing pieces of it and so for me I I'm always like maybe this is just me being selfish in this like capitalist industry but I find I'm so economical like I always I never want people to write things unless I feel like they're definitely going to get used you know so when I pitch memoir like when I go on submission I always want to have like a beginning section a middle section and an end section but whether the whole manuscript is like completely done and polished sort of depends on the story like if it's going to read more like a novel then yeah it's nice to have that whole you know that whole document so that the editor can dig in and sort of like understand if it's reading more like a narrative arc then like you definitely want to have something to show for that but to me if the story is sort of planned out well if you have like a good outline and you're showing me that you're a good writer and you can execute it then I don't necessarily need to have the whole story finished before I receive it or before I take it out awesome yeah okay let's hear that query letter so dear Carly CC and guest agent I've listened to the shit no one tells you about writing since it's onset and it's still the podcast I most look forward to seeing in my feed every week see that's very sweet thank you for all you do for your emerging writers My 70,000 word memoir, Sailing to the Moon, is marriage story on a boat. In August 2009, after 11 years together, my partner and I finally tied the knot. A week later, we untied the dock lines and set sail on a two-year honeymoon that would take us from Seattle to New Zealand. Newlyweds, exotic destinations, a -a once-in-a-lifetime adventure. What could go wrong? I was carrying a secret with me that threatened to capsize the boat. I'd had an affair with a man at work and I hadn't told my husband. I had hoped the truth of it would just magically disappear when we left the dock in Seattle, fading into the distance like the land we sailed away from. But here I was at the beginning of the rest of my life and my guilt and shame were all consuming. I was pushing my husband away when what I wanted more than anything was to pull him closer. Sailing to the Moon is a story about learning to be honest with myself about who I was, overcoming perfectionism and low self-worth, and healing the wounds from childhood trauma. More broadly, it looks at the natural world and our place in it and explores how being in nature can make us happier and healthier. I hold a BA in English Literature from the University of Washington and have taken writing courses and workshops through Creative Nonfiction, Hugo House, and UCLA Extension. The YouTube channel that my ex-husband and I launched at the onset of the sailing journey now has nearly 1 million subscribers. After I left the boat, he continued sailing and posting videos. The question of why I left or where I went was never addressed, and for years I've been receiving messages asking to hear my story. Thank you for your time and consideration. I look forward to hearing from you. All the best. Redacted. (laughs) Wonderful, Amy. Thank you. What was your take on that? So I really liked it. I found it was a little long, but I did particularly like that the author made the connections between kind of like the micro story that she's telling and the macro messages she wants to address because that's something that I think agents and editors really struggle with is when people have this great personal story you really 
like it might be a really entertaining thing to read, but you also want it to have kind of a universal message that it's going to speak to. Those are the memoirs that do the best. Like, for example, the one I always go back to is like, because so many people have read it is educated. You know, this is like a story of a woman who had an unusual upbringing and then ended up going to college. Okay, cool. Why does that matter, you know, but the book speaks to so many universal themes that people can relate to or conversely can really not. But it speaks to so many issues in our society and so many different things that, you know, like we could be doing differently in the world or, you know, these big ideas that appeal to everyone to kind of learn about. And I think that that's so important with a memoir. So here when she writes about, obviously it's a story about like this woman who had an affair and then went on a sailing trip, which in and of itself is interesting. But when she writes that she's going to connect it to, you know, ideas about her childhood trauma and about the natural world, like I think that that's super, super important. And I'm glad whenever I read a letter like this, and I know that the author is already making those connections on their own because it makes it super easy to pitch (laughs) to editors. So I'm like, you've already done a whole bunch of my work for me. If you are already thinking about that kind of like bigger picture and how this book would position itself in the world. So I thought that part in particular was great. Amazing. Is there any advice you'd give them for improvements before we look at the opening pages? I would just trim it a little bit. Like there's a lot of comps in here. There's a lot of kind of information about her platform and about her like about the trip itself. And so I think like the more condensed you could make it because to me, it's a fairly simple, the hook itself is fairly easy to explain. I wouldn't say it's like a basic hook, but I don't know that I needed like three paragraphs about where we're going with this. So yeah, that would be my only word of advice is like to let that part come out in the writing rather than sort of bulking up the query letter with it. Wonderful. Okay, what was in the opening pages? So the first chapter was exactly what you might expect. It's like the first couple of days on the boat. The one thing I find with, I find that this happens maybe more with nonfiction writers than with fiction writers. And I think it's because well, let me explain first and then I'll backtrack as to why it happens. But I found that it was a little bit overwritten at times. And I think that some nonfiction writers worry that, you know, their writing isn't as writerly or elevated because they're writing nonfiction and not like literary fiction. And I would like to just disabuse nonfiction writers of that insecurity, like have faith in what you're telling in the story that you're telling, because I thought it was very, very well done. I just wanted to like knock off some of the additional adjectives. Like not everything has to be literary. A story can still be super entertaining and super beautiful and and be accessible and simple. And so I think that close editor eye on this would have really, would really help it. But otherwise I really, I thought it was interesting. It was, you know, like a lot of the same information comes through in the sample that comes through in the query letter, which I think that's a little bit the weakness maybe of having a writing sample as opposed to a book proposal is that you can't get as deep into the story as you might in a book proposal. But for the first few pages, I thought this was great. I really enjoyed reading about the boat. She talks about how, you know, she's not used to like being at sea and she's worried about being judged. She's not yet thinking about, I think, the complications in her relationship, but she's more thinking about like the height of the waves and what am I doing out here? But also she feels really committed to the story and talks a little bit about, or to the trip rather. And she talks a little bit about the gendered aspects of that too, how, you know, like this is something that couples tend to do. And then there's, you know, like a bad reputation for women to be the ones to be like, okay, this trip is over. I can't handle it. And she doesn't want to be that person. And so I thought that like, it was nice that we're already getting sort of the layers of analysis in these opening pages. I found that really valuable. Amazing. Yeah. Amy, thank you. Okay. I think it's our last query. Yes. Letter. 
And this one is for a graphic novel script. So I found this one interesting as well. This one too has a lot of world building involved and I'll probably speak more about the query itself than about the actual script because it's a little bit tricky when you're querying graphic novel scripts. Five pages of script is not as much content as five pages of prose are so but I'll start with the letter so it says dear Bianca Carly Cece and mystery guest agents I like being the mystery I'm a fan of the podcast and learn so much from you thank you for all you do for the community I'm excited to share with you Eden 2.0 my 388 page YA speculative graphic novel script a feminist reimagining of the Eden myth Eden 2.0 combines the high-tech futurism of Marissa Meyer's wires and nerve with the lush environmentalism of Hayao Miyazaki film Princess Mononoke. It shares thematic and story elements with Yukito Kishiro's Battle Angel Oida. Eden 2.0 could be a standalone book or a two-volume duology. It was recently longlisted in the Canscape 2022 Writing for Children competition. Earth 2025. Headstrong 16-year-old Isha doesn't know that her lush rainforest home is enclosed in an exclusive biosphere on a scorched post-climate change Earth or that she and her best friend Adeo are two of the first biosynthetic humans, enhanced with superhuman strength, agility, and, in her case, superior logic. But she's getting curious about who and what she is, about the late mother she never knew, and about the one thing that's off-limits, a tech-enhanced old-growth tree everyone says will kill her. When Isha is offered access to the tree, she risks everything by plugging in and downloads the whole history of Earth. Furious at her scientist dad for withholding so much, Isha flees the biosphere for sanctuary, a cobbled-together community where synths and AI live with autonomy. While navigating the ash desert, hostile human gangs, and her increasingly complicated family, Isha learns about her late scientist mother, a brilliant ecologist dedicating to regenerating the Earth. Devastated by the desolation of the Earth and its people in contrast to the privileged life she's always known, Isha resolves to continue her mother's work. With the help of Adeo, the hard-ass but helpful biosynth sister she's just met, and a frenemy-turned-love interest she's still not sure she can trust, Isha risks capture and a return to life as a lab rat by breaking back into the biosphere to heist her mother's research from dad and discover a new way forward for life on Earth. To understand what she finds, she must trust her feelings and discover a new way of knowing beyond the limitations of logic. I am an active member of SCBWI in Vancouver, where I teach acting. I have several academic articles and a poem published, and I am an associate editor for the Voice and Speech Review. Besides writing, I enjoy hiking, singing in the car, and playing agility with my mini Aussie doodle Sadie. For a visual sense of the world, check out my project mood board at, and then she gives the URL, thank you very much for your time and consideration. Yours sincerely, Tanya. Awesome. Yeah, so there's a lot in there. One thing that I struggled with is that at no point in either the letter or the script does the author tell me whether or not she's the illustrator as well of this project. And I'm led to believe that she's not an illustrator just because there is no like reference to an art sample or anything like that. And so I had to sort of, I don't know, I find it interesting. It's tricky to know whether it's the right time to query a project when you don't have an illustrator attached yet. So for those who don't know, for picture books that are illustrated, it's very, very normal to send out submissions of manuscripts that don't yet have an illustrator attached. And the publisher will hire, you know, acquire the manuscript and then will go out and hire an illustrator based on, you know, art departments have like long lists of these people. That is somewhat less common in graphic novels, although it does still happen. So I, yeah, I had mixed feelings about it because quite honestly, unless you're an author illustrator or you're coming in with an illustrator who you're already collaborating with, normally 
I would say that for debuts, it's it's more common to have an illustrator already attached when you query the project. So I found it somewhat difficult to give feedback on the actual sample that was provided with this because it was just the words. And so much of a graphic novel depends on kind of the art style and also like the visual storytelling elements. So the one thing that I will say, well, let's I'll, I'll talk about the query letter first. The one thing that I will say about the query letter is that like there's so much detail in here and I think it could really be pared back. I The plot itself is pretty straightforward. So I think removing just some of those details that your brain has to kind of process would be really helpful because it's a really long letter right now. And I also found that there were almost like too many comps for me. So I thought that her comps were interesting, though. I don't, a lot of people in traditional publishing don't know that, like, the largest, if I'm remembering correctly, in 2022, like, the largest growing sector of publishing in terms of purchases was manga. So, like, using comps to me that kind of, like, hint at the relevance of this story to that market was really, really smart and really interesting. Like, Princess Mononoke, obviously, the Miyazaki films, this is, like, one of the properties that has like really created a bridge between American, like North American and Japanese media consumption. And so I thought that was really interesting. And it's also something that's pretty well known. So I thought that she did a good job there. And also the fact that she's involved in Canscape and, you know, references Marissa Meyer as well. Like it's clear that she understands the market here too. So I thought that was interesting. I would also include the word count regardless of whether you've included the page numbers. Usually the pages are more relevant to like the art direction side. And so I still want to know, am I looking at a YA graphic novel that has like two words per page? Or am I looking at one that has, you know, like loads and loads of prose as well as the illustrations? So I would include both. And then in terms of the bio, I thought she did great. And definitely the idea of if the author is not the illustrator, especially the idea of including a mood board is so smart. I mean, I love a good mood board anyway, but if you can't provide an art sample, you definitely want to provide an idea of like the aesthetics of the book in your own mind's eye. So I thought that that was really intelligent. So yeah, my biggest advice would be just like pair way back because you want people to be able to like really quickly process your query letter and there's a lot going on in here. Okay. And then those opening pages, what can you say considering that you don't have the illustrations or the graphics for that? Yeah. So it's tough. So we get nine pages of the script, which sounds like a lot, but it's actually because so many of the panels don't have a lot of words in them. We don't actually get a lot to read. The one thing that I did note that I think is important for any author to know, especially who's not illustrating their own work, is that when you're giving illustration notes, you really have to remember that nobody is ever going to read these, right? Like in the final copy, they're more or less sort of like script notes or like stage direction notes in a script. So they're essentially serving as like instructions for your illustrator. So there are a couple of sections in here where she's written like really descriptive like very deep illustration notes but some of the things are things for example that I couldn't quite understand how she was going to ask an illustrator to interpret them so for example one of the things she's written here is she's running a complicated code breaking software flashing a long string of numbers so that's like that's useful in terms of your storytelling but for the illustrator I don't know how an illustrator would convey like what kind of software is running on a screen that long string of numbers part is really useful but you have to remember that those details have to come out in the dialogue if you want them to come out for sure because the illustrator has no way to sort of say like this is code breaking software <laughs> just from what they're drawing so so yeah when you're writing illustration notes keep them simple and 
keep them attainable for an illustrator. Think about like what you can actually draw. One of the other things that she had written was another panel where she wanted to have the two characters in the wilderness and you could see kind of these ports on the back of their necks and the fact that they were different from each other. But if you picture like the size of a comic panel on a page, it's really difficult to get that level of detail in one panel. So just these sort of like practical considerations, I think it can be really useful to at least have an illustrator or someone with a design background to read them over and be like, okay, (laughs) this logistically or like practically can't really work. And it would take three panels instead of the one that you've sort of given it here. So I found the story itself was interesting. It's just a scene of the main character trying to break into like a computer keypad on a gate. So that's basically what we get in these couple of pages. And there's kind of a monster following her around. So we get a sense of like the danger as well. Near the very end was my favorite part where she runs into her friend Adeo, who is mentioned in the query letter, and he has just found a mushroom in the in the greenery and he's like what the heck is this and so that part was really cute to me because it really shows like in terms of the world building what we're you know like this future that we're looking at something that like as basic as a mushroom would be that unfamiliar is really I think it's very revealing so I kind of thought I would have liked to have seen more of that than these really lush illustration notes in terms of the sample. Amazing Emmy well wow we got through five (laughs) query letters so that was a a jam-packed episode thank you so much Emmy for joining us we really appreciate it and we hope to have you back again thank you so much all right let's go to today's guest my youngest son starts kindergarten this year i can't believe it one of the tricky things though about my kids being in french immersion school and me not having french as a language myself is worrying about how we're going to assist with homework as they get bigger they're young now but i see it coming we are very lucky though to live in ottawa which is a bilingual city of a million people and we have bilingual friends and francophone friends so it's going to be really easy for our kids to pick it up at a young age through school and sports activities but me on the other hand growing up where french class wasn't taken too seriously and we goofed off i am so sorry madame corrigan we're gonna have to make up the difference and that is where rosetta stone comes in as the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app and it truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. Immersion is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio to audio from native speakers, and then gives you feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. You can really hone those pronunciations, which we know is key to sounding fluent. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program to get because they have been the expert for 30 years and used by millions, thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language learning training online. Of all the apps, it is the best at speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of native speakers. Rosetta Stone has a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent built into the program. So as you practice speaking, you're going to get your feedback on how well you're pronouncing words, Other language apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of a one-hour private tutoring session. 
But with Rosetta Stone, you enjoy a lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. And right now we have a special offer for you guys that is 50% off. That is lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off, a complete steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's visit rosettastone.com slash today. 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. All right. Hello, podcast listeners. You have Carly here to do an author interview today. And it is because we have my client, Karen Catcher, here with us. Karen Catcher is the Amazon Charts bestselling author of mysteries and crime thrillers. And this is actually, you know, she is here to promote her sixth novel in the sixth book that we worked on together, which is just incredible. So, Karen, first of all, thank you for coming on. And secondly, tell us about your novel, The Greedy Three, your next book coming out. Right. And that is the hardest question. Okay. So the greedy three is about a kidnapping that goes sideways. And there are three characters that find themselves trapped inside a remote cabin with the baby and a bag full of money. So that's pretty much the the quick gist of it. Yes. And so I think what's so interesting about this book is that it is kind of one of those locked door or like closed room thrillers. I'm sure part of you was like excited by the idea of like, how do I kind of create all of this drama happening in this one house. What was kind of the fun part and what was the hardest part about writing a closed door, closed room kind of mystery? The most fun was how the characters played off of each other. I really enjoyed writing, yeah, how they were going to interact and what they would say in the dialogue, writing the dialogue between them. I think that was the most fun. The hardest was keeping the story moving, keeping the action moving so it didn't become stagnant because they were all there in this Really, it's a it's a very small cabin, so it's like one room. I couldn't even have them, you know, move around too much in different rooms. You know, if you're in a building or whatever in a locked room, but they were really isolated. Yeah, but I, I just their interactions with each other. I love. I don't know if, if anyone's seen like the Hateful Eight, the Quentin Tarantino. I love that the the locked room and how the characters fed off each other. Yeah, it was just it was just a lot of fun to write. Yes. And I mean, it ended up being the external conflict had to come from either like people knocking on the door or like kind of wondering what's going on outside, but really like the drama had to come from the inside. Yes. And I did add outside stress and pressure from the investigation, from the sheriff's point of view, the FBI, but also from the the trafficking, the smugglers point of view, all these people from the outside looking for them and, you know, some eventually find them. Another thing that's really unique about this project is the dark humor. You know, I think that's something that, you know, excited you from the beginning of this project. But how did you kind of approach writing it? How did you feel like you got the right tone when you were going for that dark humor? Yeah, I had never written humor before and I had no idea how to do it. So what I did was I watched several movies. I watched Fargo. I watched Ozark. Some of my favorite 
dark humor crime fiction or crime dramas, I guess they're called. And I was like, what made me laugh? And it was really about the characters and their actions were, they're, were so surprising. I was shocked. I knew that I wanted to put that into the story. And then I also went and purchased books on how to write satire or how to write jokes, which I am not a joke teller, <laughs> but I did. I read a couple books and then, you know, the best way for me to start any project is to just jump right in. So yeah, so I just jumped right in and I just made sure that, that the characters, their motivations, you know, internal and their goals, the scenes had to, had to be weirdly off a beat. And their actions had to surprise readers, but it, they also had to match their internal goals. So I didn't want to just do anything that was just silly or surprising, you know, willy-nilly kind of thing. It all had to match those, those characters' motivations. And so bring us back to the, the cabin. So I remember way back, we've talked about this concept, I think years before you actually wrote it or the version that it became, but tell us more about the cabin and the setting and the Lehigh Valley and how like all of that kind of atmospheric sense of place comes into your writing and especially in this, this cabin in this book and this character. Well, in this particular book, it is set in upstate New York. My other books were set in the Northampton County, uh, Lehigh County area and small town setting. But I've been to upstate New York several times and, you know, it's all small towns tend to be kind of the same, you know, surrounded by woods. They're, the people interact with their environment and how they interact and, and small towns can be really quirky. So I'm comfortable with that because I grew up in a small town and I grew up, I've been to hunting cabins. I've been to cabins in the woods. I've been to rivers and lakes. And, and so when it came to writing about a remote cabin, I mean, it was just, that's, that's to me, that's right what you know. So it was, yeah, I, I know what it feels like to be in a woods and to be in remote locations. So I just drew on that. And so have you ever felt drawn to write about subject matter that is lighthearted or what is it about you that always feels oh, drawn to the dark side? To the dark side. You know what? I was just talking to somebody about this the other day. I think, I think it just had a lot to do with, with what I grew up with and my experiences. I'll give you an instance here. So I grew up in the late seventies and we played a lot outside and anytime you play outside and you're playing tag or block tag or whatever you're doing outside as kids, you have to choose who, who's it. And most, most kids will say, you know, one potato, two potato, whatever, and you choose who's it for the game. <laughs> Where I grew up, we said, my mother punched your mother in the nose. What color was the blood? I think this is a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I really do. I think that just <laughs> explains a lot. <laughs> it explains a lot about you, Karen. It does. Yeah. <laughs> I come by it naturally. I know you and I have talked about, you know, growing up in the country, riding dirt bikes, riding four wheelers and how that, yes. how that changes a person. Yes, it certainly does. And, and I mean, well, probably a more, maybe a more serious aspect to that too, is my father is retired now, but he's a retired Pennsylvania state police trooper. So as much as, you know, he tried to keep his job away from us, especially as young kids, we still hear it. You're still in the house. You still know. So I think that, yeah, growing up around that and, and hearing, you know, things that he was dealing with in the job, I think that I was aware of bad people. You know, I was aware of crime happening. Yeah. So, you know. And so building kind of on that grittiness, I mean, there's a yeah. certain grittiness that it takes to be, to be a writer. And have you found kind of that grittiness in you serves you well as an author? Yeah, I think for writing the crime fiction that I write, it does. Yeah, I'm not afraid of violence. I, 
which is I don't have triggers when it comes to violence, so I, I don't mind writing violent scenes. I was also a criminal justice major in college, and I worked in the DA's office for a while. Yeah, I saw a lot of crime photos. I've been to a crime scene. I've seen a a body murder investigation. Yeah, I think that, yeah, the grittiness is there. It's just there. It's just based on my life experiences. Mm-hmm. And this book has the elements of, you know, the kidnapping and trafficking and money and there's like classism and everything that you're kind of balancing in this one. So the epigraph that you chose for the book is, so the epigraph is to be clever enough to get all that money, one must be stupid enough to want it. So what made you choose that epigraph in particular? Okay, so I knew I wanted to write about greed as a theme. And I was just surfing the web, just trying to like, what do I want to say? What does this want to say? And and I wanted to keep it, you know, that dark humor in there. And yeah, I came across that quote and I thought it was funny. And I thought, you know, it makes a lot of sense because so many people with a lot, a lot of money aren't necessarily happy. And I posted it on my computer. I posted that quote and I posted two others to keep me on track of what I was trying to do and what spoke to me. And speaking of creativity, did you find the pandemic to be a time and a place where you were very creative or did you find that kind of speaking of locked room, uh, being in a closed space with your family to be too much to write? Or how did you as a creative person, you know, move through those years? Yeah, the pandemic, the pandemic, it was a strange time for everybody. And I think a lot of strange, strange works or writings are going to come out of that. I did not mind being locked down because I'm typically in the house a lot. I'm an introvert. I like to stay home. So that didn't bother me. I found I had a lot more time to write during the pandemic, because even though my kids were home, my husband was home and everything was remote, I didn't have the the pressure or the stress of outside, you know, with the kids and the school and, and all of that. So it was just, yeah, it was easier for me. My kids are older, so they didn't need me like someone with younger kids needed. They were just, they were in the rooms and did their thing. So it gave me a lot more time, but I do think that the, the weirdness and the quirkiness may, may have come from that strange time. Yeah. Makes sense. So I want to talk a little bit about kind of your career and all of all of those elements now. So a lot of listeners of this show are kind of aspiring authors, and they often want to know, how does someone kind of get an agent? Can you take us back? I mean, I don't even know how many years it is eight years now, you take us back to, you know, your version of how you and I started working together and and how you became one of my clients. Sure. Yeah. It's been eight years. And it took me eight years to find you. (laughs) I was raising kids and writing when I could. I had a toddler and an infant at the time. And believe it or not, when I started querying agents, it was a snail mail. There was not much on the internet yet. And right around the time, though, I think you started, the internet started taking off and you could query agents through the internet and everything. But as it happens, I found you in Writer's Digest magazine. They did an agent spotlight. And I read it and I'm just like, "Ah, she likes the same stuff I like. She read some of the same books I read. And I queried you. And yeah, it went from there. And as I recall, that book that I signed with you didn't sell. And you were pitching it in that year. And I wrote another book that ended up being the first one to sell. So it was actually my second book with you. And then I think it was a couple of years later that we went back and sold that one. Yes, yes. I always yeah. remind authors of that. It's like, just because the first book doesn't sell doesn't mean it never will. And you kind of retooled that and built it into what became Cold Woods. And the first one we ended up selling was The Secrets of Lake Road to St. Martin's. So 
yeah, you never know those desk novels always come back around. So I think that's uh, always an important lesson for everybody to remember. Okay. And so speaking of which you've had novels published by St. Martin's, you've had novels published by Thomas and Mercer, which is an Amazon imprint, and now you're being published by Podium. So do you want to, can you talk a little bit about how these different experiences have kind of shaped your career and working with different publishers and different sizes and, and, you know, different perspectives and, and how that's shaped your understanding of the business? It taught me to be flexible. <laughs> taught me to be patient. There's been so many highs and lows, I think, in my career. I'm still here, though. But yeah, I th- it, it taught me how to cope, really, and to work with different personalities. Everyone has been lovely. I, I honestly have to say that everyone that I have dealt with in all three now publishing houses have been great. The people are great. And it's a business. And yeah, it's just, it's not an easy industry to be in. But there are opportunities out there. So I didn't let the rejections or, you know, your, your editor that signed you leaves and doesn't come back. You know, I've dealt, I feel like I've dealt with through these six books. I feel like I've dealt with a really long career (laughs) of anything that can go wrong and, and, and anything that could go right too. Yeah. I have been through and yeah, I, I have just learned how to be patient with myself and, and to cope with the highs and lows in this career. And, and the most important thing is, you know, if you need time off to stop writing because, you know, you're out of contract once again, then take the time off. Take, take you know, what you need. I think I've, I've just gotten wiser. I don't know if it's because I'm older now, but I've learned to give myself a break. You know, it's, it's just so hard. And, and a lot of it isn't necessarily personal. No, absolutely not. And I think what we've always, and you, you and I have always talked about is coming back to what is that you really want to write? You know, I think sometimes you can go down these tracks for other people or imprints or, you know, the way that you imagine that brand needs to go. But really it's like your name is always on the front cover copy, right? It's always a Karen Catcher book. It doesn't matter if it's a Thomas and Mercer book or a St. Martin's book, right? It's like, it's always a Karen Catcher book. So always writing the book that makes the most sense to you. And the one that's speaking to you at the time, I, I think is always the most important thing. And you've uh, speaking of like being wise, like, I think that's something that you've always answered to is, is always writing the book that you want, you want to write. Yes, absolutely. I think I would say to emerging writers or those who are still trying to get published, I mean, there's so much advice out there. And I always take this because I'm, I'm a huge tennis advocate. Player too, I love tennis. I watch it all. I'm watching the Australian Open as soon as we get off here. <laughs> but even in tennis, they always say, you know, play within yourself, play your game, play within yourself. And I would say that for writers, write within yourself, write your book, your story, and, and be true to that. Be true to yourself, write within yourself and try to turn off all the noise out there. You know, you don't, don't chase the, the next big thing or what's hot right now. I don't know if that's new advice, but I think it's important advice. I think it's timeless and always good to hear. So one of the things I really admire about you is your kind of writerly network. I think you have an incredible network of author friends, especially female crime and thriller authors. Can you talk a little bit about how important it's been to have friends in the business? Yeah, absolutely. Writers are the best. And when, once you you find your, you know, your, your group, which you will find through going to conferences, you will find online, you'll find going to writers groups, you know, in your neighborhoods or whatever, and where you live. But once you, once you start building that network, yeah, the ups and downs, it's, it's nice to have someone to talk to and to share. And, you know, when you build those friends too, you know what, I need a blurb, you know, my book's coming out. Can you spread it around? And, and you don't feel icky asking them to do that because they're your friends and, you know, it's reciprocated. You do that for them. 
So it becomes something I think, and, and writing is such a lonely business. I mean, it really, really is one of the, the few, you know, you're always alone. So it's, it was important to have that network of support. So other than entertainment, are there some goals that you wanted to kind of accomplish with this book, things that you wanted the reader to take away, you know, anything that you really wanted them to think about after they put this one down? I want them to think, holy shit, what did I just read? No, um, <laughs> you might have to edit that. Yeah, no, we swear I swear on this podcast all the time. It is oh, the shit oh, no one tells you about writing. So we'll, that's we'll keep true. All your there, oh, good. <laughs> well, yes. And I will let you know that in the greedy three, there is cursing. <laughs> I did not cut any of the cursing. I left the violence and the cursing in. Um, but yeah, no, I want them to just, what a ride. Like that was fun quirky, weird, but I also want them to really care about the characters and think about these characters, even though, yeah, that they're, you know, quirky and offbeat. But it, it was written for, I, I wrote this for entertainment, but I also think there's a lot of heart to it. And the characters definitely, there's a heartfelt aspect to it. I think kind of traditionally, the kind of crime and thriller category has been a male dominated side of the business. How have you felt kind of as a female author in this space and, you know, your other female author friends, I think there has been, you know, there is such a space that has been made for female authors. Do you feel like there is, do you feel like there's any double standards or are you, are you happy with the equality in, in your sector? Yeah, there's, there's space for us. And, but my biggest gripe is that they still call it domestic suspense. My biggest gripe is that the space that is made is always about the husband and wife thriller the girlfriends being mean to each other thriller, or, you know, now the new one is the revenge thriller, which is all great. Love all of, you know, I'm not, not dissing any of them, but when it comes down to your true crime thrillers, yeah, I still think, and, and, and mysteries, I still think we're, we're fighting for a spot there. If you're not writing those, those, you know, three hot topics in domestic suspense, I still think we're fighting for some space there on the crime fiction. Is there anything else you want to tell our listeners? Any kind of, you know, uplifting words of wisdom from a veteran author about kind of making in the business? I would say find the inspiration where you can. Sometimes when you're in those lows, when you get those rejections, whether you're just trying to get an agent or, you know, you're out on sub with an agent and you keep getting rejections from editors, try to find ways to cope and pick yourself up. I know I look outside of the industry for that. I look towards the music industry a lot. I watch rock and roll documentaries. I find creative types in other fields and listening to their highs and lows and their perseverance. And yeah, I just find it incredibly uplifting and like, okay, you know what? I'm not the only one going through this. And, and sometimes you have to step out of your own industry, I think, to realize that. Even in sports, I just watched Point Break, the tennis documentary on Netflix. And I remember what sticks out to me. I just watched it the other day. Uh, Maria Sakkari, just she's a Greek uh, female tennis player, and she just lost a really important match. And it was at a big tournament and she was devastated. And afterwards, she's like, I quit. That's it. She called her coach, called her team. I can't do this anymore. I quit. Four days later, she's back with her coach and her team. When can we practice? So she gave herself, you know, that time to get over. But I'm like, yeah, that's, that's kind of what we do too, right? We get a rejection. That's it. We quit. But you pick yourself up and you get back to writing. Absolutely. And we're so glad that you, that you do, you've, you've written such an incredible novel. I'm going to read a couple, I'm going to read a couple blurbs. So for the greedy three, Laura McHugh called it tense, darkly funny, and deeply entertaining with quirky characters that are wholly original. Catchers 
clever crime thriller surprised me in all the best ways and kept me riveted till the very last page. And Robin Harding, author of Perfect Family, said, a darkly funny mystery with a cast of quirky characters, scintillating premise, and a beating heart. It's perfect book for fans of Coen Brothers and Tarantino films. So I'm so excited for everybody to go grab their copy of The Greedy Three, an incredible thriller from Karen Catcher. And Karen, can you tell everybody where to find you on the internet? KarenCatcher.com. Uh, all my information is on my website. You can also find me on Facebook and TikTok, which has become one of my new favorites. Well, there you go. <laughs> Facebook and TikTok. There we go, Karen. Well, we're so glad to have you on the podcast and I am so proud to call you a client. So thanks for coming on. Thank you, Carly. And now I have a treat for you. For our Shit No One Tells You About Writing listeners, you now have an exclusive audio excerpt of The Greedy Three, written by Karen Catcher and narrated by Scott Ao. Stay tuned. Hester has just sat down to work on a puzzle when the lights flicker. Thunder rattles the windows, and at the same time, a strong updraft carries the rain to freezing heights, then tosses it back at the cottage as hail. It's 11 o'clock at night. She can't remember a summer when they've had so many storms. We're going to set records with this weather. She gets up from the card table, releasing a cacophony of creaks and pops from her joints. Reaching under the sink, setting off another round of crackling in her bones, she collects the lantern she bought with her iPad. It's not just any lantern, but the camping kind. When used on low power, it can last up to 45 days. As she straightens, her lumbar spine sighs, letting her know what it thinks of all this unexpected bending at this time of night. Subconsciously, she rubs her lower back and stares out the kitchen window. The hail has stopped and is once again replaced by rain. The water hits the glass, and the tiny liquid snakes it makes slither onto the ledge. The night creeps in. Its inky shadow covers her fingers and slowly drifts up her arms, her shoulders, her neck, until it rolls over her head and swallows her whole. She is trapped here, she thinks. The lights flicker again, bringing her back from the dark place she desperately tries to avoid. Most days she's able to sidestep the longing buried deep inside her chest. It's funny how the heart tries to hide itself from the very person it beats for. She sits in front of the puzzle again, places the lantern next to it, turns it on when the electricity goes out. The wind howls through the chimney. The trick to puzzles is to start with the edges first. You frame it out and go from there, working your way in. She's been looking forward to starting this new one all day. The edges are already separated from the other pieces, and she picks up a corner piece holding it close to the lantern to see it clearly. Then she looks at the box, searching the beach scene on the lid to find which corner piece matches. While she tries to decide where it goes, she considers making some tea on the gas stove. Does she want tea? Does she feel like getting up again? She's restless, and she's not sure why. The corner belongs here, at the bottom right with the seashells. The rain seems to be getting angrier, the water rushes through the downspout, pouring into the small yard at the side of the cottage. Thank goodness she cleaned the gutters at the start of summer. It had taken her all day, lugging the ladder out of the tool shed, leaning it against the stone walls, climbing up and down. Most accidents around the home happen from people falling off ladders. It's a dangerous thing to have to do by yourself, but she's used to doing things alone. There's no one around to help her anyway. She pulled out leaves and debris, throwing handfuls to the ground. Then she walked around the yard and raked up the mess, which reminded her to buy new work gloves. She hates blisters. 
Something bangs against the door. It's probably the wind, so she ignores it, picks up another puzzle piece and studies it under the light. She takes her time. She has nothing else to do. But there it is again, a hammering noise. Putting the puzzle piece down, she turns toward the sound. Could someone be knocking? Is she hearing things? Is it simply wishful thinking? It's hard to discern what it could be over the sound of the wind and rain, and yet there it is a third time, someone's palm slapping the wood frame. Getting up from the card table, she grabs the twenty-two that hangs on the mounts that have been screwed into the family room wall long before she moved into the cottage almost ten years ago. It's hard to believe she's lived here that long. It seems like just yesterday she bought the place with the little money her mother had left her after she'd passed. Hester had been surprised when she'd gotten a call from a lawyer here in town that her mother had a will. She'd been estranged from her parents for more than three decades. Looking back, she supposed it was the least her mother could do. She'd met with a realtor minutes after cashing the check. The woman wore too much makeup for Hester's taste. What was she hiding underneath that thick layer of foundation? Even so, there was something pretty about her. Maybe it was her confidence, or her enthusiasm at showing the old stone cottage to a potential buyer. It had sat empty for several long years. It was in a state of decay, but there was something about it. The cold stone walls, the wooden floors that creaked when you stepped on them, the relic of a gas stove and cast iron sink. These things spoke to Hester, told her the cottage had strong bones. As they were leaving to fill out the paperwork at the office, driving along the dirt road through the woods that was over a mile long, the realtor had said jokingly, be careful not to disappear back here. She wasn't kidding, Hester thinks. It's exactly what has happened. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Great news! The beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. 
they will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format, so if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at Agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A Agent. I hope to see you there.